in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, if you wanted to distill down uh, the state of our country right now, you might say it could be uh, summarized by one word, and that word is contentious. Am I right? And uh, in the last nine months, you might say that the most pronounced, vociferous, and enduring moral debate has been about the actions of one individual. Um, there has been a, a great deal of ink spilled and a lot of online chatter that's happened that has gone everything from uh, leading people to come to blows with one another. It's uh, a threatened to split families apart, all coming down to debating whether this particular individual's actions were moral. And uh, that moral debate to which I refer is, of course, whether or not Luke Skywalker would have really tried to kill Kylo Ren in episode eight of Star Wars. And I can tell you've all seen it four times, right? Um, <clears throat> what is that all about? In that film, right, Luke Skywalker thinks that Kylo Ren is out to do no good, and he finally takes it upon himself to try to off him, but of course he's unsuccessful because otherwise there wouldn't be a movie. And therein ensued a debate. Let's just call it a real debate among a lot of people that probably have a lot too much time on their hands, right? Um, about whether Luke would really do that. You know, no matter how dangerous Kylo Ren might have been, would a Jedi really betray the Jedi Code and take revenge upon this individual that may or may not have real tragic consequences on the whole of the galaxy? That was the debate. Would Luke have really done that? And so all of these purists, people that are 40 and up, right? They think, that betrays the canon, man. Luke would have never done that. And everybody else is like, dude, he's just operating under what feels like the right thing to do. And there's the debate. Would he have done it? Was that moral? Was that totally justified? And look, that, that sort of silly little debate is, is frequent in, in storylines and art forms and film and literature for all the time. People write books, people write sequels, and then people say, you know, that character that you built, they never would have done what you said he did. They never would have done what she said. It's just that sense in which you bring a certain set of assumptions to how a person is, and then this new data, this new experience comes in there, and you kind of go, how does that fit with this? And sometimes it works, and other times you go, nah, it doesn't fit. So how could you say that he would do that? I use that very silly, very silly illustration to make a far more serious point. And that is, it matters what you think about who God is. It matters immeasurably how you think God operates in this world. And the, the challenge for us who, who give even a second thought to the idea of God as he is uh, revealed in Scripture is that by his own admission, he is incomprehensible. Paul uses the word inscrutable, like beyond our ability to get our head around. That's just his nature, and for good reason, right? Like if you could really understand him, he's not really God. But he has still disclosed himself to a degree that what he has disclosed himself apparently from his perspective is adequate to our need. We can't get him all, but we can get enough. Here's the problem though. We think of him in a certain way and the new experience comes our way. New data enters into our world and we, we are tempted to make leaps about who he is. And sometimes those leaps are pretty dangerous and pretty off base. And in situations like that, we can end up on a spectrum. If you don't think properly of God, you can either be over here totally delusional about what he is like, or you can be over on this side of the spectrum and be totally despairing of what he is like. It's therefore 
we have to think well of him. And I, I mean that in two senses. We have to think properly and we have to think highly. And so last week, we began a new series, listening to a new voice. That voice is the half-brother of Jesus. His name was James, and he wrote to a bunch of fledgling churches that were under attack, now in what was sprinkled around Syria. And he is there to tell us, what does it mean to have everyday faith? What does it look like? What does it smell like? What does it believe? How does it act? And the six verses that we're going to look at today are going to help to remind us that everyday faith has to think well of God. Because if you think improperly or, or wrongly, it can lead to any sort of drastic consequences. John Calvin, early in his magisterial work on the Institute, said this is the nature of wisdom. You want to be wise, you've got to understand two primary things. It comes down to the knowledge of God and the knowledge of yourself. And in these six verses, James is beginning to imagine what the people he's writing to are thinking about their experience and their beliefs about God and is trying to get out in front of their deductions. And he's trying to help them think well of who God is, but also about what God has said of us. And so that's our burden today, to think about how to think well of God and how to well think well about ourselves. Because that's what faith comes down to often and always. And we're going to find three things in these six verses. How to think well of God's providence, how to think well of our proneness. Don't worry, I'll explain. And then thirdly, how to think well of God's philanthropy. God's providence, our proneness, God's philanthropy. We always begin and end with God, so we will too in verses 13 through 18 of James 1. If you're able, would you stand for re as we read? James 1, starting in verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you were here last week, you know that James starts his letter by addressing the one thing that you've already got to think about first when it comes to walking with faith in everyday faith, and that is, how do you deal when stuff comes to you like a flood hits your house and you lose everything? James is talking into a series of churches sprinkled throughout Syria who are all up to their necks in trials. And that's why he says in those early verses in chapter 1 that it is helpful for us to think of what God can do in the midst of those trials. That he says, consider it all joy, my brothers, when you face various trials. And he's out to say that God can work something actually rather beautiful out of what is entirely awful. And therefore, in so many words, he's asking us and them to believe or rather to not close the door on the possibility of bringing something good 
out of what is unspeakably evil. That's his argument. And here in verse 13, though, he's beginning to anticipate what they would be thinking when they hear verses 2 through 8. He's like a good teacher. He's trying to imagine what is it that would run through their head. And the ironic thing about what happened in last week's text and in this week's text is that James uses the exact same Greek word, which earlier is translated as the word trial, but here in our passage is translated as the word temptation. It's the same Greek word, perosmos. Earlier, consider it all, consider it all joy when you face various trials, perosmos. And here, God does not tempt perosmos. Why is he going there? Why would he think they would be asking that question? Why might we ask that question? And the only reason we might ask that question is because we've never been in a trial. Because we know full well that when you're in a trial, there's all sorts of things that can happen in your heart that would lead you to make certain decisions and choices and, and certain hasty conclusions about who God is and how he works that would change your heart to him. Last week, we... We skipped verses 9 through 11 because we're going to come back to it when, we, when it uh, unites up with another passage in James that speaks on the same theme. But in those verses, you get the sense that James knows what the churches in Syria are up against. And what they're up against primarily and most poignantly apparently at that time is a kind of economic oppression and disenfranchisement simply because they believe in Jesus. If you're a Jewish Christian... In this fledgling faith called Christianity, they didn't even have a name for it then. You're just the little Christlets, the little ones that follow Jesus. If you're a Jewish Christian, you have just cut yourself off from your social network. You have just cut yourself off from your religious network. You have just cut yourself off from your financial network. And if you're a Jewish Christian in the middle of the Roman Empire, then you know what? If somebody leased to you some land and they now think that you might be an enemy of a state, what might they do? Oh, I leased you that land? Tell you what. I'm ripping up the lease. I'm going to take the land back. Any number of things could happen to you in the, term, in the form of economic disenfranchisement where you're, you're cut out, you're cut off, you're stepped on, you're rolled over, and that's your trial. And in a moment like that, what can happen? All sorts of things can happen. That's when a trial can become a temptation. Because when you're in a moment like that and some landowner comes and unjustly begins to repossess some of your land. What do you might be tempted to do? Oh, you take some of my land? Oops, was that my fire that ended up landing in your crops and I burned it to the ground? Sorry. Oh, I might start a riot with my other Jewish Christians here. We'll, we'll go after you. We'll come with you with pitchforks and, and torches. We might start a riot. We might act with violence. You know what? We just might hate you in our heart for what you've done to us. And then the trial has become a temptation. And you're tempted to act as uncharitably and as unjustly as you believe that you have been treated by others. That's the situation they find themselves in. In a trial, fear and anger and hatred wells up in your heart and then you are tempted to fight fire with fire. To take an eye for an eye or go worse. And that's why James is going this way. Or that's why James has to go here to talk about temptation. Because if you're one of those churches that are struggling in that trial, then this is what your line of thought might be. Look, if God, you say, James, is allowing certain things to befall us, and those things can actually lead me into temptation to not trust God, then you know what? 
This whole situation, that's on God. That's his fault. Fine, I, I sinned, but you know what? This never would have happened if he hadn't allowed that to happen. This is on him. He's tempted me. And James is trying to say, no. You don't understand. You are making deductions that you cannot make. God doesn't do that. God doesn't roll that way. He doesn't like that. He's not for that. He's not against you like that. And that whole move of letting your circumstances lead you to make decisions about what's going on in your life and you committing sin, falling into temptation, that's as old as the garden. Chapter three, look, God says to Adam and Eve, hey, I'm gonna give you everything you need, but this tree, the tree of good and evil, stop, don't go there. Security guard, don't, just don't. And then serpent comes to Eve and says, you know what, God had a bad night. He didn't really mean that, go for it. And Eve says, all right, go. And Adam's there like, I'm with you, honey. And they eat. God comes to Adam in chapter 3, verse 12, and says, Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you? And what does man say? The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Look, he's not even being ambiguous there. The grammatical structure is, that woman, you gave her to me. Like, this is on you, God. I ate because of what these gifts you've given me. It's our inclination. We're caught, red-handed, and we find a way to shift the blame. It's what we do. I don't, and I don't have to teach you how to do that. It's what happened in James' world. It's what happens in Eden. Let's, let's just roll it forward. Let's, let's consider your moment. Look, somebody can reject you and dump on you, and, and you are full of hurt and sorrow and self-doubt and second-guessing yourself. And, and in that trial of that moment, what are you tempted to do to retaliate? to gossip, to go nuts, um, to build a faction, to, to act in a way that you just you can't believe they did that to you, and so you're going to, you know, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go after you. Or, or let's just think of it's a natural tragedy. It's not something like some relationship that blew up in front of you. Let's just imagine that you've lost everything, and you are bewildered, you are disoriented, you are upended, and what do you do? You take it out on your kids. You know who does that? Chimpanzees do that. In chimp groups, when the alpha male starts to feel strong and starts to go up and he beats up some other chimp, you know what that chimp usually does? It doesn't retaliate. He goes to somebody lower in the pecking order and starts beating them up. The little negative emotion that they're feeling inside of them, they just take it out somewhere. Look, when stuff happens, trial happens, the temptation is there. In neither of those cases, whether whether somebody has dumped on you and there's the relationship that's broken or, or some tragedy has befallen you that, you, you, you know, like it's, it's Florence's fault, right? <laughs> Something happens. In neither of those cases are you, in your temptation, explicitly blaming God. You're not saying you did this necessarily. But when you start to feel justified for those actions in the, in the wake of all of that trial, you know what? Um, whether you are explicitly blaming God or implicitly justifying your sinful actions or falling into temptation, those two houses live on the same street. They're just next to each other. You can't justify the behavior and still not think that deep down you're really saying, if it weren't for you, I wouldn't have been in this problem. And James is here to say to us, it is true, the Lord has his ways, and there are plenty of moments in which we find ourselves in sorrow 
and he is not aloof. His hands are not tied, but his reasons are not disclosed to us. And yet, even if he might lead us into places that bring us sorrow, he does not make us then allow that sorrow to turn it into an opportunity to make it sorrowful for others. He doesn't roll that way. If you want to see this dynamic about you know, the way in which the Lord works and the way in which temptation works, you know, the kind of the classical place to turn to is in Matthew chapter 4. Jesus has just been baptized. He's there to come to fulfill all righteousness. He's there to identify with the people for whom he's come. And what happens? Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by whom? The Spirit. Where? Into the wilderness. For what purpose? To be tempted. Oh. But by whom? By the devil. Wait a minute. <laughs> what, is there a collaboration here? No. God has his ways. God has his reasons. But please make it really clear the Lord is not the one tempting. But the Lord does allow us to go into moments where we find ourselves at the brink of temptation. Now there's a, an adage that's kind of pushed its way through a lot of Christian thought these days, and maybe you've heard it before, and it's this thought. God will never give you more than you can handle. Raise your hand if you've ever heard that. Yeah, talk about an effective message. You've all heard it, and guess what? It's wrong. I don't know who you heard it from, but you ought to say, thank you, I think you've got that wrong. Unless your version of the word handle means um, inconsolable on the floor, weeping uncontrollably. If that's your version of handling it, then you have a rather elastic version of the definition of that word. No, where that idea comes from, I can only guess, is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, which I think you maybe also have heard when he says this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, there's nothing new under the sun about what you face. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You'll go through stuff, and you won't know why, but God is not going to push you over the brink into sin. He won't. He doesn't do that. If you think he does, then you are actually tying both hands behind your back to be able to face the thing that is threatening you and is tempting you to sin. You have to think well of God's providence if you're going to think well of God. But that leads us then to the other point, and that is, well, what about our proneness? When we say that we are led, how does a trial become a temptation? It's when you and I inject something into the moment. And so, yes, we have to think well about God's providence. We also have to think about our proneness to what? To sin. And, you know, before I go any further there, I, 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 there's probably two kinds, at least two kinds of people in this room that, hear, that, that have a certain response when they hear me or any preacher say the word sin. And, and the first constituency is those who were drug here this morning, who are here only because they need to go to brunch with mom afterwards. I don't know what it was. And when they hear the word sin and they find the idea of God or sin suspect and suspicious, they think, God, you Christians ever talk about anything else? And I'm going to respect that sensibility and pause for just a moment to unpack that sensibility. Because if, if you have a problem with the idea of any kind of overarching, transcendent idea of justice and morality, and you don't, therefore, have a category for sin, well, then I would humbly ask for you to consider what is perhaps the trifecta of things that create the greatest moral outrage in our day. Abuse, racism, and greed. I mean, every day, every other tweet, Every other story has got some story related to abuse, racism, or greed. Am I right? Yeah. Okay. Think about it for a minute. 
What's wrong with any of those? Why are you angry? Where does the vehemence come from and on what basis? If there is no God, if there is no moral fabric that we might be meddling with when it comes to abuse or racism or greed, then why are you angry? Because in a totally naturalistic worldview in which there is no God and there is no moral fabric that you can be meddling with, then there is no such thing as dignity. There is only utility and survivability. And therefore, abuse and racism and greed are all assuming that people have dignity and that when you they convict or you, you participate in any one of those threes, you're violating somebody's dignity. But if dignity doesn't exist, then you know those are just moral constructs. Those are just sort of social things that we agree to that we think a society ought not be built on. But if there is this thing as a, a moral framework and a, and a fabric of reality and a transcendent truth and abuse and racism and greed, those really are sins. And you ought to at least be listening to your anger to ask yourself, why are you so angry about them and why would you hope to see them eradicated? I don't think it's just because you find it an unfortunate consequence of civilization. And for those of you in this room who might say, gosh, why are you talking about sin so much? I thought Jesus forgave all of that. He has. That's the good news. And I will shout it every Sunday to you. Your sins in him by his blood are forgiven. Full stop. No qualification. Great news. But let's take that trifecta again. Abuse, racism, greed. If those persist, though God may forgive that in Jesus, if you think those still aren't problems, you aren't listening. When we say that God forgives, um, if you'll think of it kind of metaphorically like this, when, when, when Jesus says, I have come to forgive, when forgiveness is in me, that is sort of setting us on a way, on a trajectory. I'm in Mills River. If you say, go to Boone, I know you mean, I know enough about geography to go, oh, you mean north, right? And when you say go to Boone, you're not at the same time saying go to Greenville. You're saying, no, go north. You've set me on a trajectory headed north when you say go to Boone. When Jesus says, I have come to give them life and life abundantly through my blood, that forgiveness is that he's out to set us on a trajectory in a direction. Forgiveness is the beginning of a waypoint towards that point in which maybe we are sinning less, where abuse and racism and greed are less frequent. And though we may fail at it, and though we may un, be un, totally unaware of how which we commit it, his, sin still cover, his, his forgiveness still covers us, but, but those are still issues, and that's why we still have to talk about it, and that's why James is still talking about it. You have to reckon with your proneness to sin. And so what James does in that one verse there, in verses uh, yeah, 14 and 15, he says this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James is there to say that sin does not originate in God. Sin is a condition into which you are born. It is not primarily to be thought of as a set of discrete behaviors or acts that you commit. Sin is to be thought of as a condition that you don't have to be taught. It just comes to you. It's there. You see through that lens. And that condition functions, at least in keeping with, with James's metaphor here, in, in many ways like sexual reproduction. Now, don't press his metaphor too far. 
okay? He's not kicking the idea of marital intimacy to the curb as if it is intrinsically sinful. On the contrary, go back and look into the sermon on Proverbs 5 if you're not sure about that. He's just saying there's a lot of complementarity between how that works and how sin works. And how they both work is that they begin with an awakening of desire. That kind of intimacy begins with the awakening of desire. People go there because their desire for it is there. Well, it's the same way with sin. The only reason we sin is because we're awakened to it. We, there's something about it that's attractive. And nobody needed to teach us that. We just sort of wanted it. There was something we wanted, and we wanted it more than maybe what God wanted for us, and we said, forget it. I know what I'm doing. I'll go there, and so I do. And it goes there. And let's just talk about that trifecta again. Abuse, racism, greed. How did those begin? They begin with just a look. Just a simple, innocuous look. And that look then is followed by another look, and that look is followed by a thought, and that thought might be followed by a smaller act, and eventually, boom, you've got a baby. We call it sin, except apart from the normal experience of a child coming to your life and enlivening your world, when you give birth to this sin, it, it's, it diminishes you. It diminishes us all. There is regret in our worlds. You, you might wonder, why is it we did a confession of sin in our worship today? Why, why, do, we always, why, why do we ever do that? I thought he forgave our sin. He has. But here's the thing. When you know you've sinned, you remember what you had before you had. And you long to have whatever might be between you and another, especially the Lord, just sort of out there in the open so we can acknowledge it and remember his forgiveness and then move on. It's why we do it. It's why James is helping us to grapple with our proneness. His point is, temptation does not originate in God. Rather, temptation originates in our desire to be God and to replace him. That's why we do what we do. That's our proneness. C.S. Lewis says about our appetites that everybody's hungry. And if we don't feed our spirits with what God has given us, we will find our sustenance elsewhere. And so he says about spiritual nature, for spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food, and it will gobble poison. Everybody's hungry. Everybody wants to be fed. And will be fed with something, even if it is that which will destroy us on the inside. How do you know if you're really beginning to grapple with your proneness, thinking well about your proneness to sin? What, what happens in you? For one, it makes you a lot more humble about what you are capable of. You begin to see yourself in a different light and remember there, but for the grace of God, go I. And in that same vein, not only do you become more humble about what you yourself are capable of, then you become more sympathetic about what others happen to them and their own sin. And so you don't even have a category anymore for looking down your nose at what they've done because you realize it would be what I could do too. But you know what else? It, how you know you're grappling with it properly? You start to have a certain vigilance of your own heart. You, you begin to want to be alerted to the slightest intimation that temptation is coming your way. You, you see the storm off in the distance, and you want to take measures to batten down the hatches. You want to avoid that. 
Uh, a lot of people say that the only way to resist temptation is to have a really strong fortitude of willpower. And that, that willpower is something intrinsic to our being. There's actually research on this question. In the Journal of Social Psychology, Journal of Social Psychology, uh, a few years ago, they, they asked the question, or they entered the, the, the research with the thesis, people who are able to resist temptation have cultivated this little inner thing called willpower. And then they actually did the research, and what did they discover? No, not exactly. People who are good at self-control from the study seem to be structuring their lives in a way to avoid having to make a self-control decision in the first place. In other words, they avoid the possibility altogether. If, if temptation's over there, they don't walk over there and go, let's see how strong I can be today. They just kind of steer clear because they're being vigilant because they know about their proneness to it. And they're not, so, they're not so fooled or deceived in themselves that they could avoid it. Everyday faith thinks well of God's providence. It also thinks well of our proneness. But it will do neither unless it thinks well of the last thing we've got to talk about that James covers. You, you and I will never think well of God's providence. You and I will never think well of our own proneness to sin unless finally and foundationally we think well of God's philanthropy. I had to find a P word. I'm sorry. But it, it works because, look, the last three verses of this passage are allowed to tell us one thing. God is a gift giver. That's what he does. He is not out to harm you. God is out to give us what he has for our good and everything is his. And when it says that God in him, there is no variation or shadow of turning, that's, that's actually a phrase right out of the astronomy manuals. The Greek word Planetai, from which we get the word planet, is actually translated as wanderer. Planets are what? Wander. And, and suns are what? Sit there. And, and what James is out to tell us in, in invoking that sort of idea is that God's sun does never change. He doesn't cast a shadow here some days. He doesn't cast a shadow here some days. He's, he's a fixed point. He is not arbitrary in what he does. He is not a capricious God like you'll find in Greek mythology. Now, does that mean I always understand what he's doing and why? Of course not. But James is just there to say, you don't have to guess about whether he wants good. Even when everything about your life right now is bad. And that's why we need his spirit to convince us of that. Because I know, you know what it's like when it's bad. God is a gift giver. And the primary gift that he gives, James splits out there in verse 18, like the, the biggest example he can think of about how God is the giver of every good and perfect gift is what he says in verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Once again, we have this metaphor of a birthing in the previous verse, we talk about how it is, it is, um, sin is born by our desire, which leads to death. But in this text, we're talking about the birth of what? A community, a new people. And that new people is born by his own will 
through just the word of his own truth. When, when James invokes this idea of the father of lights, we are meant to think of God creating the sun and the moon, the one who puts all the lights in the firmament. It's by just the speaking of a word that he brings things into being. It's just by his own intention that God brings this community into being. And what does that community for? What's its purpose? To be a blessing unto the world. Where do I get that? It's from where James invokes the use of the word first fruits. It's a very Old Testament word because it's a very Old Testament law, sacrificial code word. Because when you are a member of the Israelite community, every year, if not more often than not, you would bring what? The first part of your harvest under the temple as a sacrifice of praise in thanksgiving to the notion that God actually is the one who owns all the land. This land is his land. This land is his land. It's a much shorter song. <laughs> you bring your first fruits to acknowledge his lordship over all the land, over all the fruit. And that's why we talk about first in, first out around here. You bring your financial resources unto the body of Christ that it might go and prosper in this world. God has chosen a community to be a blessing unto the whole world, and that is his way. And so, God's gift to the church is to forgive it of its sin and to establish a relationship that will not end, that they might belong unto him. And it is all entirely out of his kind intention, not for any beauty, pedigree, or impressiveness in itself, simply because he wanted to. That's his gift to the church. But it is that community, those first fruits, that is God's gift to the world. And right now, there are probably people in this room who are stammering or choking on me even saying those words. Because for me to say that the church is God's blessing to the world, there are plenty of people that would say, I'd like him to take his blessing back. Because there are any number of things that this church has done in this world that are full of sordid, awful, hateful stuff. And you know what? That's true. You can't excise it from the textbook. It's how it is. But folks, consider just for a moment what's at the core of what we believe. And there's somebody that has noticed that of late. The guy's name is Tom Holland, not the guy that plays Spider-Man, but this other guy who's a historian of late antiquity. He's a guy that's, that's just studied Western civilization for millennia, right? He hasn't studied for millennia. He studied the millennia of Christian history. But he came to a realization when he considered the way in which ethics operated from before Jesus comes on the scene and after. And he had to come to the conclusion, based upon his survey of history, not as a believer, but simply as a historian, that apart from the church, you and I would have to find somewhere else the idea that it is nobler to suffer than to make other people suffer. You would have to find somewhere else the idea that every single individual is worthy of respect and dignity. You would have to find it somewhere else. And so, by his own admission, he was thoroughly Christian in the sense of the influences upon his life. And he had to realize as a historian, he had gotten it wrong for a very long time. Are there any number of things that the church has done that make us all sad, depressed, and exasperated? Yes. But it is that which Jesus has brought unto us through himself. 
that give us reason to think that it, in fact, this community that God has born by his own word is in fact a blessing unto the world when it's operating as it should. And how did God do that? How did God birth this community? He sent his son into trial. And in that son's trial, in a garden, he wondered, Lord, is there any other way? But not my will but yours. God sends him into trial, which could have been on his way to temptation, but why? So that you and I would be freed of a just condemnation. That's the good news. We're covered in that, and that can't be taken from us for those who are in him. Amen? It's the gospel. That's what he did. That's God's greatest gift to us. That is God's most excellent and perfect gift. The one who sent his son to end the trial that we might avoid condemnation. The one that sent his son into the world that we might live by his truth and be made more holy in that truth. That's his greatest gift. And the biggest application that you and I can take from this passage is this. Take it as a gift. As a real gift. Not as a gift that you might think. Don't jump to conclusions about what you think a gift is. And certainly don't jump to the conclusion that at all times and all places people have agreed about what we mean by a gift. Because if you'll reach back into the 7th century BC, there was a poet by the name of Hesiod who said, this is the kind of person that you give gifts to. Invite your friend, but not your enemy, to dine. Especially be cordial to your neighbor. Love your friends, visit those who visit you, and give to those give to him who gives, but not if he does not. We give to a generous person, but no one gives to someone who is stingy. That's how the ancient world defined a gift. To those who were deserving of them, give gifts. Guess what, friends? God doesn't give gifts on that basis. The gospel is that he forgives those and he gives to those who were stingy in love. The gospel is that he gives gifts not to those who are neighborly unto him, but who were in effect his enemy. That's the way God gives his gifts. That's the gospel. And you and I have to receive a gift like that in that way. But too often, you and I struggle with it in this way. And with no disrespect to mothers-in-law, I'm sure there are many of you in this room that would never act like this. But the way mother-in-laws are typically portrayed in television sitcoms is like this. Your mother-in-law comes over for your birthday, and they bring you this wonderful gift. And you're all astonished at the generosity that they share. And you have a wonderful evening together. And then as they're packing up their things and heading out the door, and you say thank you again for their generous gift, the mother-in-law says, well... I guess that means we'll be seeing you at Christmas, won't we? Oh. Oh, that's what their gift is for. This, this subtle little attempt to sort of, um, this little ploy to get my compliance on something that you want from me. Friends, God doesn't give gifts like that. He doesn't need you. He's fine, really. He's okay. Oh, he loves you, but he doesn't need you. And therefore, he doesn't need to give gifts to you as a little ploy to get your compliance to his wish. Raise your hand if you ever read O. Henry's The Gift of the Magi. That story, right? Husband, wife, very, um, in, in really difficult means. They both 
sacrifice for each other, give gifts to one another. Imagine if the story was retold in this way, in which the, it's only the husband that gets a gift, and, and he spends everything he's got. He, he gives away his most precious possession so that he can buy her brushes and combs so that she can take care of her wonderfully long, beautiful locks. And he shows up on Christmas Eve, and he hands her that gift, and she hasn't gotten him anything. And imagine her reaction when she sees this lavish, sacrificial gift, and she goes, oh, wow, you got me a generous gift. Uh, I, I haven't gotten you anything. Oh, I should get you something now. Imagine if the story went out like that. What's motivating her? She's out to save face. Uh, she's out to get this burden off of her back of feeling like, oh, I should have gotten you something too, and you went to all that trouble. Friends, God is not out to motivate us in such a way where we feel like we have to get him off our back. God does not give gifts in such a way to enforce a certain compliance upon our hearts. No, God gives gifts in the same way that actually O. Henry tells that story. Why do the husband and wife give everything un- that they've got to give a good gift to the one that they love? Because they love him. Because he loves her. And they take joy in the fact that that person has sacrificed for them and therefore to sacrifice of what they have for the good of the other, that's just a joy. That's just a normal thing. God doesn't give gifts to subtly force our hand in compliance, but he does give gifts in such a way that we are bewitched by that. And therefore, we have no trouble in wanting to give back unto him, even if it costs us. That's the nature of his philanthropy. And you and I have to see it that way. Otherwise, we will only feel like this life is one big attempt to pay him back, as if. You can't. He didn't say you should. Which leads us then to what I think might be really three quick applications once you understand the nature of his gift and you grapple with his philanthropy. Three words. Mortify, testify, identify. Mortify, testify, identify. First word, mortify. It talks about sin in this passage. Mortify is a biblical word. It means put it to death, kill it. Paul says about it in Romans 8, as you put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Spirit. Sin is always crouching at your door. You've got to handle with it. So what do you do with it? You mortify it. You kill it. How do you kill it? We could do a whole sermon series on that. John Owen wrote 12 volumes on it. I'm only going to give you 30 seconds. How do you mortify sin? When you find yourself in it and having fallen into temptation, What's on you in that moment is not only to remember that in Jesus there is forgiveness, but then to ask yourself, how did I get here? Like, what brought me to this moment? You have to kind of retrace your steps. And then you have to ask yourself, where could this lead if I continued to go down this road? And then, as you're thinking about sin in terms of a way of walking, you have to ask yourself, what do I have to believe to keep going in this direction and what do I have to repress in order to keep going there? It, it's those sorts of reflection and questions that you begin to do the work of mortifying the flesh and the power of his spirit on the basis of the risen Jesus and his blood. That's mortifying sin. There's surely more to be said, but that's a good place to start. Testify, I think, comes down to the fact that God is a gift giver. And therefore, it is appropriate for us to cultivate 
the discipline of giving thanks for both the small things and the large things. We had some friends over for dinner last night, and as they left, I walked back into my house, and all I could just say was thank you. Just thank you. It was a meal with friends. It was good, but I just thank you. If he really is a gift giver, then, it, then even if your world has plenty of things that you could rally on a legal pad, that everything that is wrong with it, I, I don't doubt that that's true. If he is the great gift giver, then it is proper for us to at times testify vocally, thank you. And then finally, identify. If in fact God's gift to the world is the birthing of a new community, then you and I, if we are in him, ought to identify with that community, which is just a highfalutin way of saying join the church, become a member. There's a membership class going on right now. There'll be another membership class going on later. And look, if you think all I mean is I'm interested in nickels and noses in chairs, I'm not. If I take my wife out in public and I never introduce her to anybody and I don't even acknowledge her presence and I don't even speak well of her with those who have never known her, you would look at me like I'm an idiot. I will never publicly identify with the one that I love? Really? Membership is not about getting your name on a spreadsheet. Membership is about identifying with the community that God bought with his own blood. And you may have 14,000 reasons why you're angry at the church and why you are exasperated by the very idea of it. You know what? Cool. But a long time before you were mad, Augustine, St. Augustine, a bishop of the church in the 4th century said this, look, the church is a prostitute, but she's my mother. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. We identify with the church not because she is un- because she is holy, but holy <laughs> in a lot of ways, but because she's unholy, because guess what? So are you, and so am I. And so we identify with the body not to make me feel good and not to fill this room and not to anything of that, but because it's just the natural outgrowth of what it means to say that Jesus is Lord. He gave us himself. He gave us some things to believe, but he gave us each other. Mortify, testify, identify. I think that's what comes from what we find in James. And then maybe we're thinking, well, of him. Would he do stuff like what we think he is? Let's replay the tape. Let's listen to what he says. Let's think well of him. Let's pray. Father, I ask your blessing upon this people whether they find you wonderful or deeply suspect. I pray for anybody in this room. I pray for my own heart that I would think well of you, that when we are tempted to despondency, second-guessing, to you being aloof and uninterested, to thinking that you have abandoned and have no interest, We ask that you might come unto us by your spirit with what you've said, even when we are so dull, even when we can find no reason to hope. I pray that you would help us to think well, even if we feel nothing, so that we might rest, we might trust, we might even reflect your character in all things. Help us, sir by your spirit, by what you've said and what you've done.
In Jesus' name, amen.